All right, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I want to talk this morning, uh, based on chapter 5, about the word honor. Honor. To honor someone is to highly regard somebody or to highly respect somebody. When you honor somebody, you highly regard them. You highly respect them. And you respect and honor them in different ways. The Bible talks about honoring people in different ways, by providing financial needs or by respecting them with the way you talk to them or, or by thanking them or showing appreciation or gratitude or lots of different ways to honor people. But that's the meaning of the word honor. It means to highly regard or highly respect somebody. Now, there are some people in this world who are hard to respect, true or false. That's very true. It's very hard sometimes to respect people based sometimes on principles. They have different principles than we do, different morality, different standards of living. And so when we see the differences in principle, it's hard for us to respect them because they're different than us in that way. Sometimes because of preferences. Some people have preferences, and so when somebody has different preferences than them, they have a hard time respecting them, like with the issue of clothes, tie or no tie. Some people think that ties are great. Other people think ties are horrible or with clothes. Sometimes when I dress up, people around here freak out, and they respect me less. Then when I dressed down, in fact, even this week, I was working. I came into work one day, and I had a nice pair. Y'all would be so shocked. I wore really nice pants, and I had a nice shirt, and I tucked it in, and I had a belt on, and I looked very handsome. I shaved, and Isaac didn't know how to relate to me. And the next day, I came in with jeans and untacked shirt, and Isaac was like, thank you. I like you so much better in jeans and an untacked shirt. Sometimes people, it's hard to respect people who drive certain cars, you know? If you drive a BMW, ooh, or a Lexus, ooh, or a Camaro, right? But others of us who drive the Beamer, we look at the person who drives the hoopty or the jacked-up car, and we go, that's ah, hard to respect somebody who's driving that down the road because it's polluting the air and everything else. Honoring people can be very, very difficult. And 1 Timothy 5 says something shocking to us. What 1 Timothy chapter 5 says is that as Christians, we are to honor and respect all people, no matter who they are or where they're at in their life development process. It's a radical call to respecting, even highly regarding all people that we come into contact with. It's a massive call to the church and to Christians to honor and respect all people. In fact, it's even a spiritual discipline to honor all people, no matter who they are or where they're at in their life development. And it's a very difficult call. Look, let's look at just some of the verses in 1 Timothy 5. Let me show you the various groups. He says in verses 1 and 2, 
He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, what he's saying there is he's talking about the issue of rebuke. Everybody say rebuke. So when you rebuke somebody, you're confronting somebody who has sinned against you, right? And so even people who sin against us, we are to honor and respect them according to where they're at. So if they're older, we're to treat them as father or mother. If they're younger, sister or brother. But even in confronting people who have sinned against us, we ought to honor them in the way that we rebuke them even. In verse 3, he talks about widows. He says in in verse 3, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. I'll come back to that here in a minute. If you jump down to verse 17, he says, let the elders, that's the spiritual leaders, we talked about elders, spiritual leaders, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you're to honor even your pastor who wears jacked up shirts, right? And then chapter 6 and verse 1, the people you work for, let all who are under a yoke as slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Of course, that's strong language in our culture, slaves and masters, but obviously the application for us would be employers. People who employ us, we are to honor them and respect them. So what he's ultimately saying is he's saying honor all people. And Jesus talked about this. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, you greet your brothers in the street. Well, the Gentiles do that. You're to greet everybody. He says, anybody can love their friends, but it takes a special person to love their enemies. The Bible talks emphatically about the fact that we are to honor and respect all people, no matter who they are. He qualifies it, of course. He says, you know, you got to confront people who sin against you. You got to rebuke some people, but you got to respect them. You got to highly regard them. You got to respect who they are. This is completely different than what we've been taught at growing up, you and I. See, we've been taught something completely different. What have we been taught about honor and respect? We respect, we are to respect the respectable, we are to honor the honorable. We are to love the lovable. That's what culture teaches us. That's how we're raised. And and then we tell people, we say, if you want my respect, you're going to have to earn it. See, that's the world. The world operates off of that. The whole world operates off of that principle. And yet God comes to us and he says, you can't be like that anymore. You have to honor and respect people automatically. Some of us, especially in a modern society, we are control freaks. We are hypercritical. And why are we hypercritical in our culture? Because we have so many options and so many preferences and so many different styles and so many different homes and so many different neighborhoods and so many different cars. There's 977 different makes and models of cars. We have options of restaurants and what kind of food? Oh, I like Italian more than I like Chinese or, oh, I like steak more than I like rice or... 
We have all these options and all these preferences. And what it does is it creates a critical attitude because we have, we have these styles that we create. And then we get critical of everybody else who's not like us or doesn't look like us or who doesn't have the style like us. And God is saving us from a critical heart. I can tell you as a preacher, when I go to hear other preachers, I'm very critical. I could have said that better. I could have preached that sermon better. I could have... Because I'm a control freak. I'm overly critical. And God wants to help all of us lose a little bit of our control freakness, lose a little bit of our overly critical spirit and attitude. And he calls his church to honor and respect and accept all people. No matter who they are or where they're at in their life development process. And we ask ourselves, why? Why does God call us to such a high level of honoring other human beings? Why does he call his church, his people, his community to honoring people like that? And what I want to do is answer that question of why. Because that's a really powerful question. Because actually, I don't think, at being at Cross Point Church, I will tell you, I don't think you all struggle with respecting people. I really don't. In my experience with you, I think you all are some of the most generous, um, giving, committed, loyal people I've ever met. In Oklahoma, we are not as loyal as you people are here. (laughs) I have learned a lot. Or as generous. And so I feel like you really do respect people. But the issue is, do you know why we should respect and honor all people? And in particular, uh, at the end of the message, I'll give you some steps on how we can do this better as a church. But let me give you two answers to the why should we honor all people, no matter who they are or where they're at in their life development. And I want to get those answers in the section dealing with widows. You heard me read. There's different sections. He talks about people who, who sin against us, widows, uh, teaching leaders in the church, bosses and employees. So I just want to focus on the widow section and point out the widow principle for our church. And inside of that, we will be able to extract why we should honor all people no matter who they are. Now look at verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, what he means by that, uh, the NIV actually does that verse a little bit better as far as helping us to understand it. He says, recognize widows who are truly in need. Widows who are truly in need. Then he goes on to say in verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household And to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, that is a widow in need, like really destitute, really has financial needs because she's lost her husband, she is in need. Uh, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse 
than an unbeliever. Now, the widow principle is this. Widows who are truly in need are elderly women who have lost their husbands. They don't have any family left to take care of them. They have deep financial needs, and they are destitute. And God calls his people to take care of these widows uh, financially. He goes on to talk about enrolling widows. This church, in particular in Ephesus, had a list of widows, and widows could apply to be on this list. And if you were on the widow list, if you were enrolled on the widow list, the church would give you financial means. He tells younger widows to not apply for the widow list, to get married and to have babies, to get remarried, have babies, and manage their own household. I'll come back to that here in a little bit. But The widow principle is this, that God wants his church to take care of those who are the most vulnerable in the church. In the Old Testament, widows were part of what's what's been called the vulnerable quartet. Remember, Israel was called to take care of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. God calls his church to honor and respect the poor, the most vulnerable financially, by providing for them, giving them funds or whatever they need so that they can get by. And so that's the practical side, but the theory or the theology behind why the church is to do this for the most vulnerable, why God's people have always been called to help out the poor Why the church has always been called to help out the oppressed, as the Old Testament would say. Paul tells us for two reasons. Number one, we take care of widows and poor and the most vulnerable in our community financially or in other ways. And also we respect all people, no matter who they are, because this is, it is pleasing in the sight of God. Look at that in verse 4. Why should we honor all people? Why should we provide for the poor? Why should we respect all people? Number verse 4, because this is pleasing. Everybody say pleasing. It's pleasing in the sight of God. It, It brings pleasure to God. This is not talking about like, I'm going to please God and be made right with God and be justified and my sins are going to be paid for if I take care of widows. That's not what this is saying. It's not talking about being saved or how to get saved. It's just talking about God being the father of the poor and he takes pleasure in people being provided for. It's pleasing in the sight of God. It's pleasing in the sight of God for a family to take care of its family members who are in need. This is a very relevant passage for modern people, isn't it? We kind of just put our family members, you know, just do the bare minimum. And he's saying it pleases God when a family takes care of its family members. And if the family can't do it, then it pleases him for the church to do it. It's pleasing In the sight of God, it brings God pleasure. If you were to be introduced somewhere, I mean, if you 
if you're introduced and they say, hey, we're going to introduce you before a crowd. How do you want me to introduce you? The way I would have them introduce me is I would say, I want you to introduce me as the senior pastor of Cross Point Church. Or if it's in reference to my family, I want you to introduce me as master of the living room. Right? That's how I want to be introduced to the world. I want the world to know these things about me. I'm a daddy of my children. I'm a pastor at my church. Introduce me as the pastor of the church. The question is, if God is introduced to the world, how does he like to be introduced to the world? Take your Bibles and go to Psalm Psalm 68. The Psalms are all, always nearly near the middle of your Bible. Nearly. Psalm 68 and verse 4, we learn how God likes to be introduced. <laughs> what brings him joy by the way he likes to be introduced to the world. Psalm 68 verses 4 and following, it says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched Land. If you go to Psalm 146, you learn why he likes the title of being father of the fatherless, protector of the widows. You'd like to see what his job description is. His job description, Psalm 146, 5 and following, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. He's powerful. Yet he uses his power in verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hunger, hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. This is what gives God pleasure. <laughs> God loves to honor and respect people, and he loves to provide for needs. In fact, it is his very nature not to take, it's his nature to give. In fact, let me go further, although I know you can barely contain it. God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, yet totally un unified in the Godhead. And in eternity past, he's been providing for himself within himself. He has always given and spoken and loved and sacrificed and given. Everything God does is give to the need. He gives to the needs of his creation. He gives to the needs of his universe. He gives to the needs of those whom he has created. Man, he even provides for those whom he has not even saved. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. 
God, in his very nature, gives. It brings him pleasure to provide for needs. And it makes sense that from the time of the Israel community to the time of the church community, that he would say, you should delight, like I delight, in providing for those in need because that is your opportunity to reflect me. Ah. But moving beyond the poor, respecting all people no matter who they are or where they're at in life, this is your opportunity to reflect the fact that God shows no partiality. This is what James told the church. You are not to show partiality for the rich over and against the poor. You are not to show partiality for the Jews over and against the Gentiles or the Gentiles over and against the Jews or men over women or women over men. You are to show no partiality because it brings pleasure to God to show no partiality. God gives, and we exist to be mirrors to reflect Him. This is important. There are some people who have a hearts of philanthropy. There are some people who love to give to the needy, who love to respect different people, but for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we like to take care of people so that we feel better about ourselves, so that we can get rid of our guilt of having things, and they don't. So I don't want to feel guilty about having anymore, so I think I'll go and serve, and I'll make myself feel better. It's called emotional exploitation. You're taking the poor. You're taking other people. You're using them to feel better about yourself. And God says that's the wrong reason to respect people. The right reason to respect all people is because it reflects our maker. It reflects our creator. It is an act of worship to who God is. It is an opportunity when I have a family member in need. If my mother has nowhere else to live, it is an opportunity for me to bring her into my home or my grandmother to bring her into my home and to give her a place, then provide for her and give her food and care because that's what God has done for me. I'm reflecting who He is. Brings him pleasure. The second reason why we respect all people, no matter who they are, but we also provide for the poor and the most vulnerable. The second reason is because not only does it please God, it preaches gospel. It it preaches the gospel. Look at verse 8. It's a stunning verse, verse 8. He says, "If, if anyone does not provide, if anybody doesn't respect and highly honor those in their family and does not provide for his relatives and especially members of his household, he has denied, this is an amazing verse, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever.
If the church doesn't take care of its vulnerable, it's worse than an unbeliever. If a family member doesn't provide for his family and his family members, they are worse. Not the same as, like, here's an unbeliever. They are deeper down here. They are worse than an unbeliever. That's really harsh. I mean, that's stunningly. I mean, right? That's, that's wild. And the key to understanding this is it says he has denied the faith. The key to interpretation here is what is the faith? I mean, if you have wide margins in your Bible, I would say underline that phrase, the faith, and I would put by it, the gospel. Because the faith of the Christian church is the gospel. And the gospel best expressed in this context is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the faith. That's that's the gospel. (laughs) I learned this week that there's this pastor in Texas. I tell you, these pastors in Texas, they just kill me. He created a blog, and it's called PastorFashion.com. And the whole blog is, it is committed to pastors being hip and trendy in the way that they, I'm not even joking. I am not joking. And, and, and he says on this website, because God is hip, pastors should be hip. Therefore, I'm going to teach you as a megachurch pastor of 15,000 people who are constantly on Mountain Dew, And have ten smoke machines in their church. I am going to tell you pastors how to be hip. Don't you wish I would go to that blog and be more stylish? Because God is hip, you should be hip. (laughs) And I'm working on this sermon this week, right? And I'm going, here's what Jesus did. Here's the gospel. Jesus had awesome clothes of glory in heaven. Amen? And the dude put him down. He took off his awesome clothes of glory, which beats any trendy clothes here on earth. And he put on the humble clothes of humanity. And he humbled himself. And he went to a cross where they took his clothes off and sold them. And he was naked, dying for my sins. He became poor so that I might one day be in glory with him and put on my own clothes of glorification in heaven with him. That is the gospel. Jesus became poor so that I might become rich. And if I do not provide for the poor, and if our church doesn't provide for the poor and the vulnerable, and we're more focused on Bob Smith, who's got all the money, but not Sally Joe, who's barely making it. I've denied the faith. I'm worse than an unbeliever because I, above all people, should know 
what generosity is. I should know more than all unbelievers because I believe. I have been saved by grace. I was spiritually impoverished. I stood before God with nothing. And then I refused to work for God. I refused to go to work for God. I refused to be religious enough or perfect enough. In fact, I turned my back against God. Because I'm jacked up, you see. And God still provided welfare for me. If I don't provide for those in need, and especially my family members, that's, see, that's, that's, the, that's the tone. If you don't even provide for your family members, much less anybody else, you won't do the hard work of providing for your family members who are dependent upon you. And you have denied the faith. You and I are worse than unbelievers. You see, but when we do, when we do, then we preach the gospel, not only in word, but indeed, we preach the gospel. We herald what we believe about God by the way we provide for those in need. We say, yes. You know, I helped out with the food pantry this last week because we didn't have enough people serving at the food pantry this last week to do the food delivery. And so I got up humbly. No. You know, I get that little tray thing, and I get the, and I, and D calls out the number, 32, and I'm like, 32, and 32, I'm like, let's go get us some food, and we walk around the thing, we give them food, but some of those people, I talked to them before we let them in, man, and some of them are like, you know, y'all never have enough people, and, and they have this attitude like, like, like we exist for them or something, you know what I mean? And you're tempted in your attitude towards them to say, look, man, this food has touched hundreds of hands so that you could have something to eat this week. And you, you're getting, you know, you're bowing up against me. But you see, I'm reminded that's what I do with God almost on a weekly basis, isn't it? God... God, why why, did you let this happen? God, why? God, you should do something about him. It's very profound to serve and to respect all people. It's very unique. And that's what God does. And that's what he did in the gospel. And when we do it, when we do it, when we do it, and we provide for the most vulnerable, and we respect all people no matter where they're at, and they come in this church and they know that they're honored even when they don't deserve to be honored. They're made a priority even though they don't deserve to be a priority. They're respected even though they're not respectable. They're loved even though they are unlovely. They are sensing something of what has happened in our own life because of what God has done for us in his son Jesus preaches the gospel. It's pleasing to God. And so let me just close by giving us real specific 
applications for our church and our church members in particular. But anybody who considers Crosspoint your home, I just want to apply this passage to our lives so that we're trying to pray about how God might help us by His grace to walk in this truth. Number one, if you consider Crosspoint your church home, you have to give something financially to the church. We can't have any free riders who come and experience all the benefits of our ministry, but then they don't contribute anything financially. We have a benevolence uh, offering. We have a general offering. We have uh, missionaries we provide for. We have the food pantry we provide for. We're, we're trying to do a better job of applying our benevolence funds, but we got to continue to have people contribute financially. How can you walk in pleasing in, in something that is pleasing to God? How can you preach the gospel with us in community? You can faithfully, regularly, consistently contribute to the ministry of Cross Point Church. If you're not a believer, now listen, if you are investigating the gospel and Christianity, don't give anything. Take Jesus into your life because you'll never get it unless you get Jesus. So I don't want unbelievers necessarily to feel the pressure or compulsion to give. I don't want anybody to feel the compulsion, but we should cheerfully, out of gospel faith, contribute to our ministry. We have to be a church that does that. Number two, serve. We, we always struggle. We only do food delivery at our food pantry once a month, only once a month. And we don't usually have enough people. We need more people to serve. And I'm, I'm going to start doing it more, more regularly once a month. I, I want to go out there and meet these. I'm trying to meet these folks and talk to them and pastor them and, and make contact with them. But I need more people to come alongside and push the thing and help them get their food and help Dee and the ladies and Jessica and all these people that are putting this together, but we've got to serve as a church. Not because we want to feel better about ourselves or not because we're trying to be made right with God. Listen, the only thing that makes you right with God is Jesus' death in your place. So we're just trying to reflect our own worship and expression of gratitude for what we already have in Christ. So we've got to serve when we can. When the opportunities come up. Number three, we need to speak the truth in love. The rest of this passage talks about you can't let people get away with sinning against you. Or the church can't like so respect people that we're not going to say anything about sin. We have to speak the truth to each other and in our preaching and in our lifestyle. But we've got to speak the truth in love in a respectful way. You are a sinner saved by grace. That should give you some measure of humility with those who are different than you. Number four, and I don't know how, maybe this is just something you can pray about, but I really feel like that this passage is talking about not only relief for the poor, but development of the poor. He goes on to talk about, in fact, let me point this out really quick. He goes on to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 9. 
he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, widows and who's to be enrolled on this list. And he says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger women for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation of having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. And so he's talking about how the church should not only bring relief, but development, help people to develop their life. The church should respect people by helping people to develop their life, to move beyond whatever phase they're in. If if they're poor, then they should move beyond that. There should be some kind of development process. And so I really love the fact that we're providing relief, but we've got to begin to pray about how we can provide development of people as well. I go off on that for a while, but number five and finally. Don't assume you fully know the gospel. Because you don't. You, and I don't either. To experience fully the gospel is a lifetime and it's a community project. And I want to know more of this good news. I want to know more of God's grace. I want to experience it and taste it. Remember, know how the psalm says, taste and see that God is good. I want to taste it. I want to experience. I want it to get in my bones. I want it to, I want it to flow out of my heart because I'm not only knowing it intellectually, but I'm coming to know it more and more in my heart. I'm knowing more fully the gospel. And, and, and if I don't assume that I know the gospel fully, I will participate in worship, in prayer with the church and life groups with the church and providing relief with the church and food pantry. I want to experience the gospel and I refuse to assume that I've reached a level where I fully know the gospel of Jesus. So as a church, we are to honor all people no matter who they are or where they're at in their life development process. And that's because it brings pleasure to God to see his people reflecting who he is. It preaches the gospel and what he's done for us through Jesus. And we now have these different ways. We can contribute. We can serve. We can speak the truth in love. We can pray that our church will get better at not only relief but development. And number five, we refuse to assume we fully know the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and this message. I thank you that you came into our life. We were poor in spirit. We had nothing to offer. We came with empty hands. We we were like the prodigal son way far away from your home, and yet yet you worked in our hearts. You awakened us. You, You brought us back home, and even before we got back, you ran to meet us. You covered our unrighteousness. You paid the penalty for our sins. You you enlivened us. And so, God, we just pray that you'll make us a community that reflects that message 
And Lord, that you'll make us a community that reflects your very attributes, your nature, that we will be a mirror of your glory and a window for other people to look through us to see your good news. We worship you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.